1: Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Thank you all very much to, for coming to Capitalism and Anarchy. Um, I was just thinking, does this festival seem more anarchic than the other one? Well, perhaps just sort of superficially, but actually we all get here roughly on time and we have great debates. Um, and maybe, th- maybe organisations can be run with a slightly lighter touch um, and, and we all enjoy it as a result, who knows. Anyway, we're going to be talking about that sort of thing. How big a state do we want? How decentralised... A state do we want and can markets function without a central government or without a big state these are the things we're going to be discussing with on my right aaron bastani who is a political commentator recent phd graduate from the new political communications unit at the university of london he's co-founder of navara media and he writes for the guardian vice london review of books stephen king on my left here is Senior Economic Advisor to HSBC. He's a columnist for the FT, and he's author of When the Money Runs Out, The End of Western Affluence. So, uh, that's cheering. (laughs) And on my far left here, Deirdre McCloskey is Distinguished Professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and she's been described by The Spectator as a match for Thomas Piketty.
2: So, welcome to you all. First of all, is anarchism a viable political option? Well, no, it's not. Not if we're talking about the ideal type of anarchism, clearly. But then the same is true for capitalism, the same is true for communism. When Karl Marx wrote his incisive excoriation of industrial capitalist modernity uh, in the mid 19th century, he was not talking about actually existing capitalism. That's why his book, his magnus opus, is called Capital, a Critique of Political Economy. He was criticizing a growing orthodoxy around the work of Adam Smith, around the work of David Ricardo, a few others, uh, which he disagreed with, but it was different to the capitalism of his time. And so when we're writing off uh, a certain political option, I think we should make a distinction between actually existing capitalism or actually actually existing socialism and the stuff we find in the textbooks. What has anarchism contributed? I would say it's contributed two things, two positive things. The first is it emphasised uh, individual flourishing, non-domination, non-interference, self-experimentation. Um, These are all hugely important values. Uh, As people that live in a democratic, free society, we should really admire that tradition and its influence on the world we live in today. Between 1871 and 1917, the left became increasingly enamoured by the state. It increasingly didn't really have much time for individual rights. It was very deferential to authority. Um, Didn't have a critique of that. Between the failure of the Paris Commune and, of course, the Russian Revolution, anarchism, I think injected that critique into the left, and it's been a very valuable tradition ever since. In addition to that, capitalism also offers a very useful critique of the state in relation to the market and capitalism. Anarchism says, historically, that the problem isn't just capitalism, it's not just uh, market relations, but also the state, and that the state and the market are mutually constitutive. Now, clearly, the political stratagem of the left, again, primarily between 1871 and 1917, this was generated by the failure of the Paris Commune, Uh, and found its apotheosis in the Russian Revolution, the Leninist Revolution, uh, didn't have that critique necessarily. It thought if we can take the apparatus of the state, then we can smash capitalism. Anarchism was always uh, critical of that, and it seems to have been proven correct given what we know about Russia uh, over the course of the 20th century. What's bad about anarchism? Well, as a political, uh, again, stratagem, I'm not going to talk about the ends, I'm going to talk about the means because in anarchism of course ends and means are seen as uh indistinguishable inextricable from one another they have to be the same thing right if the if the uh if you're thinking about ends justifying means then you're not an anarchist right uh, clearly if you are trying to generate a politics uh, society a political economy Beyond capitalism, you need some kind of bureaucratization. okay? So this is where I disagree with anarchism, despite the many valuable things it says about autonomy, self-experimentation, liberty, which, by the way, I think are many of the key values of the liberal tradition taken to their logical conclusion. That's why I see anarchism more as an ethics than a politics. As a politics, both as a politics of means and of ends, I think it's limited. As an ethics, in terms of how we conduct ourselves with one another in society, I think it's very valuable.
3: I'm gonna kick off with a little story about um, a journalist um, who was writing um, in the US um, before the First World War. His name was Lincoln Steffens. He was a muckraking journalist who um, thought that uh, the US was pretty corrupt and he hoped to see an alternative vision um, elsewhere in the world. He didn't like capitalism, he didn't like the way in which uh, the US uh, economy appeared to work. And he went looking for that new vision and he found it, or at least he thought he found it. Uh, He came back from a visit to the fledgling Soviet Union in 1919, um, and he famously said, "Uh, I have seen the future, and it works. Um, As it turned out, I don't think the future uh, worked particularly well in the Soviet Union, although, to be fair, for the first 10 or 20 years um, after his particular comment, uh, the Soviet Union showed tremendous increases in living standards in a relatively short space of time. However... If you then continue through the remainder of the 20th century, all the way up to uh, the 1980s, and look at the further progress that the Soviet Union made relative to the capitalist US or capitalist Europe, you you find that at some point, probably in the 1930s, uh, the Soviet Union stops making relative progress. And thereafter, nothing really happens. In fact, by the 1980s, per capita living standards in the Soviet Union are still only about 30, 35% of what they were in the U.S. They'd gone up, but there hadn't been any further convergence. And what that, in one sense, tells you is that the alternative models to capitalism, whether they're anarchism, whether they're, they're communism, a- appear not to have delivered the kinds of outcomes that people hoped they would deliver. The second thing I'll say is this, that when it comes to uh, capitalism, I suspect that is going to disagree with me on this, because I'm halfway through her... Her third book, um, I, not the third book, but the third volume of the, the trilogy. The trilogy. The trilogy. Uh, this is uh, the bourgeois equality. This one.
1: Available at the
3: bookstore. <laughs> Mine is too. It's not as good as hers, but uh, anyway. but, but 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 what's what, what's I think uh, in, interesting about um, the book is that it, it makes a very strong claim that institutions are not so important. What matters is this idea of people coming together and being entrepreneurial and people valuing those kinds of issues. What I would like to say, though, is I think institutions still are important in certain ways. And this is a bit unfair to sort of quote specific pages of your book because it is a very good book. But on page 136, <laughs> um, uh, you, you, you mention that uh, the fact that Italy and, and New Zealand have very different institutions and yet their living standards are very similar uh, suggests that these institutions don't matter that much. What you don't mention is that 30 years ago, New Zealand had living standards which were only 80% of what they are in Italy. They've converged to about the same. And if they continue on their current trajectory, and of course it's always dangerous extrapolating things, then in 20 or 30 years down the road, New Zealand's going to be much, much richer uh, than Italy on the basis of simple compound uh, growth rates. Now the question is, why is it that that convergence has taken place and why is it that New Zealand might begin to overtake? Italy And I think institutions do matter here, to a certain degree, in the sense that capitalism can be damaged by bad institutions as opposed to necessarily capitalism being supported by by good institutions, if I can put it that way. So so in the case of Italy, uh, before it joined the Euro, when things went wrong in Italy, it would just devalue. Every time it devalued, it sorted its problems out by kind of redistributing its difficulties uh, from itself to other countries within Europe. And the way it worked was a kind of burden-sharing agreement that when Italy devalued, Italian exporters did better because their exports, to the rest of the world, were now cheaper. Uh, But at the same time, uh, Italian consumers did worse because the price of imports from the rest of the world had gone up. Equally, Germans uh, had revalued against Italy, so their consumers did better because uh, imports from Italy were now cheaper. Uh, And at the same time, uh, German exporters did worse because the exchange rate had gone up. In the Eurozone, which is effectively an institution, what you suddenly find is that Italy's performance goes downhill extremely rapidly. So having had the opportunity to devalue, to adjust, to change its behavior relative to the rest of the world, Italy begins to go wrong. Uh, And in fact, whereas Germany has seen tremendous gains in living standards uh, since the end of the 1990s when the Euro was first created, Italy today, in per capita terms, is worse off than was the case in 1999.
1: Saying actually, the problem with Italy is its own government, it's the strictures, uh, a supranational government in effect.
3: Yes, that's the, 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 the way in which the Eurozone has worked is that it's created a redistribution of benefits and costs yeah. across the system, yeah. uh, which has been extremely helpful. And Italy, for has some.
1: Lost, and Italy has lost the power to control its exchange rate and devalue, and therefore, and because the power has gone upwards, as it were. So, what, yes. so when we're talking about the relationship between the state and the economy, which we are here, yes. what you're saying is that. Italy is suffering from having, losing state power
3: upwards rather than being able to... Yes, absolutely right. So it's, it's lost that sort of monetary flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and all I'm saying, really, going back to Deirdre's book, is that I think institutions in some cases do matter because when you change them, you end up with different results from what you had previously.
0: Kropotkin's great book, Mutual Aid, which was a left-wing anti property anarchist uh, tract, um, which my, um, my eminent and clear-minded um, co- colleagues here will have heard of. And he was a great um, anarchist. In fact, he wrote the, the article on anarchism in the 10th edition of the the 10th and 11th edition of the encyclopedia britannica and i was just terribly attracted by this because it was a a vision of a family and i think that's why people become socialists or or um or or anarchists because we, we all come from families and 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 families are run like socialist economies, or if they're particularly sweet, like cooperating anarchistic societies without a state, without a, a violent potter from in charge, unlike, um, like, like say, Stalin. So, the question this afternoon is, is whether, a family model can be applied to the whole, sus, sus, the whole society. Whether the kind of fairness and amiability of uh, from each according to his ability, to each according to her need is appropriate for what a great thinker on these matters, Hayek said, the Great Society, S- uh, sixty m- million uh, 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 folk, or thirty two, I mean, three hundred and t- twenty m- million. Now, I don't think that the kind of anti property anarchism that Kropotkin advocated is can work. It works inside a family. You wouldn't want to charge your children for lunch. That would not be a a smart way of organizing a, a family. But it is the correct way to organize a large society. And I have now come, after a long career of being, as I said, a a socialist, not socialist, a a, a left anarchist, then a kind of um, Joan Baez Marxist, and then a a Harvard Keynesian, and then a social engineer, and then a Chicago School economist, and then an Austrian economist, and now a kind of motherly libertarian. Um, (laughs) I, I've, I conclude that, in, to answer directly the questions we've been posed, that we don't need a big, a big government to make our economy works, work well. We need some government, we need governments for courts and, and police and national defense and a few other things and indeed as a, I also call myself a Christian li- libertarian, I'm an Anglican or an Episcopalian as we had to start calling ourselves after we broke with you all. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I do acknowledge an obligation to to um, to the poor and I'm prepared to be taxed to pay for an income subsidy to the poor. But I'm not willing to have 45% of our income consumed by the government. 55% in France. Henry Kissinger, that that war criminal, um, who's a very, nonetheless a very amusing man, called France the only successful communist country. And at 55% of national income, or even the 35% of my own country, it's too big, it's not helping the poor, it's not making the economy function better, it's not keeping the best welfare program ever invented which is
1: laissez-faire
0: capitalism.
1: The debate.
2: Theme one.
1: Best welfare programme ever invented, laissez-faire capitalism. What would you say to that?
2: um, It's certainly, it's created a standard of living for many people around the world, particularly now since Deng Xiaoping in China, for hundreds of millions of people, billions of people. So. What has capitalism capitalism? Capitalism. Capitalism. For many people, absolutely, but we still live in a world where we have absolute technological... I mean, the the technological revolution we're going through at the the moment is just unbelievable, right? We have profound abundance, and yet that sits side by side with unbelievable poverty. I think something like a billion people on less than $2 a day. I'm sure Stephen will be like, actually, it's this. It's a lot of people on less than $2 a day. One billion? Yeah, it's a lot of people, right? Once
1: it was four billion.
2: I, I agree with you. I'm just saying that there's still a, there's still a residual problem yeah. there. I and mean,
1: uh, the question uh, always is what happens to the people who fall through the net under laissez-faire capitalism? And what happens to the old and the sick and the unemployed? And exactly. In addition
2: to, obviously, people think oh, sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, I think the big problem now for the 21st century is growing income inequality in both the global north and the global south. And there's a trend there uh, which is at odds with this claim. Uh, And so, for instance, I think it was two years ago, it was the first time ever in Britain that more people were in work and in poverty, i.e. 60% of the average wage, than out of work and in poverty. That's very, very new. And that reveals a very dramatic failing for laissez-faire capitalism. It has to address it one way or another.
3: Can can I just say on this, I think there's a paradox here. The paradox is that at the global level, uh, between countries, income inequality has come down. Come down quite significantly, largely because of the progress that China has made.
0: Uh, in India,
3: other countries in Asia, made tremendous progress over the last 30 or 40 years. At the same time, within countries, income inequality has gone up significantly. And one thing I think particularly yeah, is particularly striking... is countries, not here. Not, not here, actually, to be fair, but a lot of countries, particularly the US, it's gone up a long way. But then you, you look at um, the numbers for income progress over the last 30 years, just to see what's happened to people's incomes, taking different deciles through the global income distribution, what you find is that the very, very rich have become even richer. What we might describe as the middle class, uh, lower middle class in the West have, in many cases, made no pro- progress at all over the last 30 years. But You've got this huge number of people in the middle of the global income spectrum, China, India, Indonesia, whatever, who have made huge gains over the last 30 years. So, so while there are unfairnesses in the whole of the system, the system as a whole appears still to have generated overall much higher levels of income than was the case previously globally. But it's created these fault lines within individual countries, um, which gives this paradox of income inequality falling at the global level but also rising at the at the local level.
0: I don't agree. I I, I I've got the data. I, well, <laughs> I have two, so we'll have to have a dual at dawn with data. Because if here, here, uh, perhaps our our facts are not in in contradiction with each other. If you did a Gini coefficient, which we've all become familiar with, um, on individuals in the world, there's been a dramatic fall of income inequality, even in the last 30 years.
1: So, in individual
0: countries. No, individual people. How can so I be unequal with, agree with agree myself? I and, I? and I think we agree that if, if we you were, were to array states. all the people in the world and do the calculation of inequality, you find inequality fallen. And then there's a terribly important point, which uh, you may find more on this in my 50-page uh, review of Thomas Piketty's book um, online. There, there's the very important point that the equality of what you might call, I can't think of a very good name for it, but essential consumption or important consumption, that's increased, that is, equality has, over the last 30 years, over the last um, 100 years, over the last 200 years. That is, we were much more unequal in housing, in health care, in nutrition, in educational opportunities, in, 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 in the basic things of life in 1980 than we are now, even in a single country like Britain, or in, certainly in, in 1900 than we are now.
3: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
1: So, to bring, so to bring it back to the subject at hand, I yeah, mean, this terrible. is part of it. Uh, is that reduction in inequality as a result of the state redistributing either goods or money, or is it because capitalism has made people richer and, and more equal?
2: I mean, we can keep on talking about income inequality declining, but I will return to this point. In-work poverty is higher than out-of-work poverty in Britain. It, w- it is as of last year. That's very new. 40 million Americans, around about 40 million Americans, are on food stamps, OK? So there is a massive problem here.
1: But that's why we have working tax credits in order to reduce inequality even for people right. in work.
2: I want to say two things.
1: So that's the state, actually.
2: Yeah, I want to say two things. I want to defend the state in regard to certain, the provision of certain public goods. The NHS, we spend about 8% of GDP on the NHS. It covers every single British citizen. It covers up to 63 and 64 million people, okay? 8% and it's universal coverage. The United States spends 16% of GDP on its healthcare system, okay? And a lot of people aren't covered, right? And I think it was the Commonwealth Fund, a uh, think tank that specialised in the provision of medical care, last year said that Britain had the best, two years ago, had the best healthcare system in the world because of effectiveness and efficiency. So the state provision of public healthcare, socialised healthcare in this country, isn't just effective, it's not just a morally preferable thing, which a lot, you might not think it is or whatever, but that's the, that's the traditional argument for it. It's also more efficient. It requires fewer resources. Why is that? Because of a problem in economics we call the principal agent problem. Okay, and issues of moral hazard. Now, the question is, how many sectors is that relevant to? I think the state has a profoundly important role to play in, fr- in the provision of healthcare, for instance. Um, so I would say, absolute minimum, yes, courts and the defence of pro- t- property relations, all these things, as you're saying, but the argument for socialised health care, for me, seems in, sort of indisputable, right?
1: What about education? Should education be free up to the age of 18 and provided by the state? Well...
0: I think it shouldn't be provided by the state. I think it should be financed by, by taxes on all of us. Provision is not the same thing yes, as financing. And, and for example, in Sweden, often held up as a model of a socialist society, it's not, it's highly capitalist. Since the 1990s, any Swedish child can go anywhere in Sweden for elementary and secondary education. They have vouchers. Um, a- a- and on higher education, I'll make the point, that free higher education which m- many of us in this room have been the beneficiaries of is a subsidy from general taxpayers to upper middle class uh families who can afford not, not can afford that's not the point who who whose children are well prepared for university education and expect to have it the uh whereas um, uh, poor people in britain and in, the, in my own country, don't expect to go to university. Our our higher education system, I would say, is better than yours.
1: Well, actually, ours is no longer financed by the taxpayer. Ours is now financed by the fees that individual students pay after they have graduated. I doubt, and it's, and it's precisely it's fully that way. Sorry,
0: I, I very much doubt that it pays for all the costs of uh, of the u- universities. Does it? Well, it's Think true that well it's true
3: that the. There's a maximum level of student loan each year. Yeah. So obviously there are different universities providing different kinds of levels. Yeah. Of well, teaching. then, so then it's there then, may be some variation. Then, you know, this
0: too. is new, news to me. In 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 France, it's all great. Yes. I mean, okay, you, but good. Good. Let's m- keep moving in that direction, because then you'll have as fine a higher educational system as we have in the United States. But, what, but what's all about <laughs> that is that?
3: In my experience, <laughs> See, I I came from uh, a relatively poor family background. I was the first person in my family to go to university. And I benefited hugely from there being a state system to pay Were you at a,
0: at a grammar school, by the way?
3: I was at the grammar school, yeah, yes. Well, but, but that, I didn't. But, but it, was school, it was a state one. It wasn't a private school. one. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't state, okay. I, I, I just look, I was yeah, innocent, yeah, Of course. I was an innocent eleven-year-old who was asked to take okay. a test. It wasn't my fault I passed the test. <laughs> anyway, I went to the. I went to the grammar school and uh, I went to university. I was the first yeah. person in my family to go yeah, to university. I understand, and I, and I admire that. But what I'm really getting at is that I, I think it is. It would have been less likely that I'd have chosen to have gone to university if it was all associated with paying fees no, no, but it, uh, but upfront or getting a loan that I would then feel no, totally burned no, no loan.
1: But no Stephen, loan. interestingly, since the introduction of student loans and fees, the, participate, the participation rate of disadvantaged students
3: at the university true. has actually gone up. I'm talking from so a personal point of view. I don't right. know what right. happened but, to but you know, I,
0: I, I'm not in favour... Actually, loans are not such a terrible thing because you have you, you just said you've enormously benefited from it. Why shouldn't you help pay for it? But still, I, I think we should... Charge lower prices to poor people, and and but but to have it, let, let's 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 go after the French again, um, in 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 France, uh, um, the, 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 high, higher education is free. You go to the Ecole Polytechnique and you pay not a dime, and everyone pays not a dime, and it's the it's the. Upper class and so look here. Here's my point about our our topic that that fits into this: state provision is dangerous, often inefficient, often unfair, Um, uh, and and so here here's here's another way to look at it. You mentioned Italy. there are rankings of the quality of uh, the 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 integrity of public administration. The it's called the um, uh, Transparency International does it, and it's a respected thing. 190 countries. Let's take the top 30 and say, which includes Great Britain, the United States, and 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 New Zealand is at the top, and so forth. Denmark. Take the top 30 as countries where we think the public administration, the state, is honest and you might want to give more money to it. My old state of Iowa was a state like that. My new state of Illinois is nothing like it. But, but 86% of the world's population is in the other countries. Italy ranks 75th in this ranking out of 190. And no Italian of my acquaintance wants to give more money and power to the Italian government. So maybe in these few liberal paradises like Britain, uh, it's a good idea to have uh, uh, state-financed this, that, and the other thing. But for the rest, you know, there's a reason that Italians were anarchists in the late 19th century, and many of them still are. The the state is a monster in Italy.
2: Right. Uh. A few things. Firstly, Italy. Italy in the 1950s and 1960s, to less extent 1970s, basically 50s and 60s, breakneck rates of economic growth. The two fastest fastest growing economies in Europe in the 50s and 60s. Who were they? Who were they? Greece and Italy. Were they not corrupt economies then? Well, no, it's because you have a huge transfer of labor from country to city. Urbanization, industrialization, a process Britain, Germany, France have before then. Britain, particularly. So I think it's a bit, and the institutional thing for me is a bit, I mean, Italy is sclerotic economically. Yes, it's institutions, but also net immigration and the Eurozone, I think, are the major explanations. Yeah, you, you can
3: well, adjust for that. You can adjust for the net immigration because we have per capita data on what happens to people's income. So the, the, my comments were all specifically about per capita living standards rather than the overall... But clearly community.
2: all the best people are leaving, right? I mean, you, it's not about a per capita thing if the best <laughs> entrepreneurs, industrialists, designers... There's a market out there. Tri- That's what happens. I, and then I just want to okay. say one more thing, which is about HE. Um, two HE, what's that? Higher education. education. Higher education. Oh, Higher education. education. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. It's terrible. You shouldn't do that. It's my industry. Higher, edu- <laughs> Higher education, first thing. From a classical liberal point of view, the state, if it should have any role at all, is to give resources to individuals to subjectively choose their own ends in life, Okay. I totally believe that, and I think the state, this is where we may disagree, right? I think the state has some role in giving those resources to the individual to then objectively, ch- subjectively choose their own ends. I think it's very important. I think universities have a role to play in that, as do the humanities, right? Secondly, the specificities of British higher education. We have over non 50% non repayment of these loans. It doesn't look like a viable. Well, so system.
1: far, they've only just been brought right. in. Right, I mean, it
2: could go up, and there's a certain tipping point. I think it's like 56% or something. Uh, well, well, once, once people start earning more money, is all I'm the saying, concern, it's very early there days. Are, there are concerns. I mean, Andrew McGettigan's been very good on this. Uh, he's a, he's a, a wonk on all matters higher education related. And he's saying the tipping point's around 56%. He thinks it's quite plausible, actually. The thing is it's not going to work. Well, not, but okay. I, think, I think one difficulty okay. here
3: is that, is that in, the, in the past, the assumption was that if you went and had further education, you would by definition have a much higher average stream of income than if you hadn't had that further education. Today, I don't think it's quite so obvious. Yeah.
1: Theme two. We've been talking about what we want the state to do for social benefit, basically, haven't we? You know, higher education, health, police, courts, that sort of thing. But how much of a state do we need for economic, for market benefit? I mean, can, does the market need a powerful state in order to function well? Well, I would say no. Don't I, 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 so we need antitrust legislation? No, for we instance? certainly Don't we do need not need
0: antitrust legislation. It's a, f- it's a fool's errand. We, we, we go after so-called monopolies that that disintegrate in the next five years. We, we, look, regulation, among which is antitrust, has the problem that the technologies and, 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 and the entry and exit that's inspired by the technologies is constantly changing. And so we make regulations for electricity generation, as we do in my country, Based on a model of, of the electricity industry in 1910, and so <laughs> the regulations are getting steadily worse, be, partly because the technology keeps changing out from under them. So uh, it's it's.
1: <sighs> but if we had no, re- that isn't that just an argument for better regulation? If we had no, no regulation, wouldn't we as consumers all be no. completely ripped C- off?
3: Can I give you an example of this no. actually, which is yes. South Africa? South Africa. There are two industries which um, have sort of grown side by side over the last 30 or 40 years, one of which has been enormously successful and actually unregulated largely, and the other of which has been enormously uh, unsuccessful and it's mostly regulated. And these two industries are uh, mobile phones and electricity electricity. generation. Um, And with mobile phones, no regulation. What's happened is that the companies are able to charge the market price... Uh, for what's taking place and by charging the market price (coughs) it means that innovation investment takes place within the particular industry the network expands and eventually more and more people benefit from this but there's also a lot
1: of competition which i guess there isn't in electricity generation well there
3: could be competition in electricity but the point with electricity is that the, the government has intervened to keep the prices low to benefit the typical person you know um on the street or whatever but by keeping the prices low the industry is not able to earn the money which will then be invested in expanding that industry there, there, thereafter. So, so bad interventions can lead to very poor outcomes relative to what you might sure. initially have wanted.
0: When I, when I first ca- went, not the first time, the second time I came to Britain for an extended stay was when I was a graduate student. And we wanted to have a, have a telephone. So we called up <laughs> the telephone company. This was 1967. We said, could we have a phone? They said, uh, yeah, in two years. And that's the result
1: of... But that was a state-run company rather I, than a private company said. regulated
0: Yes, by but the state. you ask, if, if, are we just at the mercy of a bunch of, uh, 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 of scam artists if we don't have regulation? Ask yourself, what really prevents your local... <laughs> restaurant or pub from poisoning you? Is it because... The inspector has come from the uh, fr- from the from the state and made sure the the kitchen is clean. No, it's because if 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 your local pub poisons one person, and there is a pub in Oxford that uh, that serves a ploughman's lunch, which is a disgrace and will poison people, <laughs> uh, um, uh, then it's uh, it's out of business, as long as you have a uh, uh, As long as you have as long a long free you have press. word of mouth, yes. No, as long as you have a free press. So, so th- they're obsessed with keeping their kitchen
1: clean. They'd better be. Okay, so if we want... Oh, sorry, Aaron, you want to come in on I that? I want to say
2: just a couple of things very quickly. First of all, I agree with the point about the state taking too much in revenue. I agree with you, but Marx, Karl Marx wasn't about redistributing wealth. He was about redistributing the means of production. That's a fundamental difference, and I think the left has to uh, be very attuned to that. Secondly in regard to innovation, we sort of hold up the iPhone and we go, isn't this wonderful, right? Isn't this amazing? All the technology in this comes from US defence agencies. Lots of it does. And so... No, but it does, right? I mean, and that is, again, it's indisputable. And there's a conversation to be had about the role of the state. I think taxation be on, much, much the in
3: invention and innovation. Having the technology yeah. there is not the same thing as actually innovating it, designing oh, it, spreading the it time. around. Oh, I agree the
2: with you. They didn't scale a product Probably. that's well, a no, globally. But, known but,
3: product. Otherwise, the Soviets would be producing exactly the same kind of consumer goods. No, no, but yeah, the, the military advances in both countries were similar. But, but the but the the consumer advances were fundamentally sure. different. But
2: the disruptive technologies of the jet engine, nuclear power, the internet, like HTML. Um, uh, Touch screens, all these no, things, no, look, look. AI. No, no. I mean, none of this stuff no, no. is possible no, look. without public funding. And no, if, no, look, we, if we don't no, want these things, no, then no, look. okay, look. I'd prefer them.
0: You, you could, ma- yeah, I understand. You all approve, but, but you know, that, that's that's not right because it, on that same grounds, you could, you could, ju- you, you could um, j- justify any institution, however g- good or bad in total, in the supply chain. I mean, you could say, well, it's, it's uh, th- to the uh, innovation is caused by, the, by by pencils or pens because you know everyone uses pens, and there they are in the supply chain. So that means that that the pen industry deserves tremendous credit for the modern world, and I I I think these the 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 these arguments about um, they're highly partial. Let, let me express it that way that uh, uh, people who already want to defend the role of an extremely large government um, come up with these examples that some tiny part uh, was was made by, by the government. And indeed, the assumption is that if it hadn't been made by the government, it wouldn't have been made. You don't think the jet engine would have been invented? if it weren't for uh, the second I'm counter, yeah.
2: well, no, I mean, uh, not a yeah,
0: counterfactual yeah, historian. Come on, you're not a counterfactual historian. <laughs> sure you are. You're saying that if it weren't for the government, there wouldn't be much innovation, There's huge which is crazy. This
2: huge very high cost of entry to these kinds of things, and oh, clearly the state on. is one of a very select group of actors that can participate in it. Unless okay. we want monopolies, and they can do it too. No, I don't want <laughs> monopolies. Like Google, they can do it.
1: Theme three. How small a state could we actually get away with and still be a functioning country? About 15% of national 15 income. 15%. Yeah. So what in that case would the government not do that it does now? It would not give
0: subsidies to middle class and rich people on massive scale. It wouldn't have an agricultural policy, which is a scandal for the poor countries of the world, which would be 10 times better off than all the foreign aid we now, g- g- uh, now give to them if we didn't have a common agricultural policy or American policy. It wouldn't have large national defense. Um, it, would, uh, it, would <laughs> it would be a small, I mean, I'm speaking now of all <laughs> levels of government. Um, roads, for example, could be private. There is no. You char- char- and charge tolls for them. Charge tolls, which is what, what Britain did in the 18th century. There were hundreds of, uh, of, uh, of turnpike companies in Britain and in the United States and Sweden, so forth. So it could be very much smaller than it is. Uh. What would be your ideal size
1: of the state?
3: Uh, the simple answer is I haven't a clue. Um, but uh, <laughs> the more complicated answer, I think, is that a lot of things that we think uh, have to be provided by the state because there are market failures of one sort or another that come through. With new technologies, a lot of stuff doesn't have to be provided yeah. by the state the, you, you, the ability to well for example uh, car road pricing right. i mean you know the, the, rather than having huge uh like we go in france you go past these oil the seven bridge you go on the seven bridge you have to stop at this sort of huge toll booth but well, everything can be done electronic we I mean, know we can right. be done electronic through the, through the london uh, congestion charge so there are lots of examples whereby you could have a debate at least about the impact of technology on whether it needs to be provided by the state or whether it could instead be funded uh, through regular pricing yeah. Uh, okay. I don't think the debates happened sufficiently so far. Yeah. I agree.
1: Last word on this and uh, then we're going to have I would questions. agree
2: that we should have a much smaller state, much lower rate of taxation, but again it's about that question I'm not up for uh, redistributing people's incomes. I'm more, you know, I'm more prone to thinking about redistributing the means of uh, production and asset ownership, far more important.
1: Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion,
3: visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.